And so we might say this is an experience of the void. Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast, where we discuss digital culture, media, technology, and make sense of the never-ending information cycles. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, we are delighted to welcome a professor of media studies at the University of Oslo and author of Mediated Authenticity, How the Media Constructs Reality, Goon Enley fake news and um, all these conspiracy theories they also come across as real for people because maybe people don't believe uh, the media to be uh, honest or authentic or trustworthy so they they look for something behind the the real um, news so they think that oh there has to be something underneath there has to be something more real than what people tell me so they become really suspicious Enley joins us to discuss the paradox of mediated authenticity, the characteristics of authentic performances in the media, and why anti-establishment attitudes tend to appear more authentic. In the last century, we've moved from radio to television to a digital media environment, and with each shift in dominant medium, we've experienced a shift in prevailing attitude and experienced how the introduction of a new medium creates questions surrounding the authenticity of content and the people involved. Audiences, content producers, and regulatory authorities, if they exist, are in a constant negotiation to determine the authentic from the inauthentic. We see it today with Facebook deeming trolls or bot accounts as inauthentic accounts. But In the 1930s, people were believed to have been famously fooled by an H.G. Wells radio broadcast of his novel War of the Worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man. This was at the beginning of a radio environment. In 1960, People who watched the presidential debate between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon believed John F. Kennedy to be the winner if they watched it on television, but believed Richard Nixon was the winner if they listened to the debate on the radio. In 2006, millions of people watched YouTuber Lonely Girl 15 and believed her to be a young woman in distress. Hi guys, um, so this is my first video blog. When in reality, a production company had hired actress Jenna Lee Rose to play a distressed vlogger after the company learned how to imitate the popular conventions of YouTube. Later, in 2008, Barack Obama was able to leverage his social media platforms to create strong parasocial relationships with his audiences that many help attribute to his rise to the presidency. Hello, Chicago! And it would be impossible to ignore how Donald Trump's use of Twitter in 2015 and 16 and his anti-establishment rhetoric was able to convey or evoke an alternative sense of authenticity. But at the center of conversations about the authentic lies a more human intention. Who is trying to hurt us? Is someone acting genuinely? Enley provides us with useful heuristics in order to help us better understand this environment and be more equipped to deal with this environment moving forward. 
I was really taken aback in 2018 by just how quickly Instagram Stories and Instagram Live emerged as platforms for mediated political communication, namely how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Beto O'Rourke were using the platform to engage with voters in new and interesting ways, to speak directly to their constituents in real time, and what was even more interesting and perplexing was that most of the conversations and dialogue that I encountered in the mainstream, or even on Twitter, which I I guess is the mainstream now, were focused on this idea of authenticity. And it wasn't until I found your book, Mediated Authenticity, How the Media Constructs Reality, that all of the mainstream arguments began to make sense because you were able to create brilliant heuristics to help frame these arguments. So can you take a moment to explain what mediated authenticity is and why it's important? Haha, a difficult uh, concept, but uh, I invented it, so I guess I have to explain it. Uh, Mediated authenticity is kind of a paradox because everything's um, constructed in the media. Uh, So it's a paradox in itself. Uh, The term mediated authenticity uh, refers to how the media constructs reality uh, through a set of uh, conventions and illusions of authenticity. And the concept refers to kind of a negotiation and the process of communication in which there is no yes or no, there is no black and white, there is more of a negotiation of what is real, what can be trusted, and what can we agree on. When I hear the term mediated authenticity, I think about what the term itself implies, that being that there is mediated authenticity and then there is perhaps something else on mediated authenticity. Why does handwriting or other forms of communication not necessarily fit into this idea of mediated authenticity? Mm, the, uh, The concept of authenticity is the also complex and it's uh, used in many many disciplines such as psychology philosophy art history music studies and it's used in different ways uh, the the term is always referring to something real something genuine and something opposite of the fake and um, the constructed uh, the referring to something original. For example, a painting. Is this an original painting, yes or no? It could be a copy, it could be an original, and you can do research to uncover that. But in terms of the media and the mediated authenticity, it's more complicated because everything we see and hear and read through the media it has already been constructed and redefined. Uh, So we have to uh, look at it um, from a different perspective Um, because always the raw material that's used in, for example, news production, uh, it 
it's never a one-to-one -one relationship between reality and what you see in the news. It's always produced and, uh, of course, selected, uh, constructed and framed and narrated. Um, so there's something more complex, I would say, in the mediated uh, authenticity. But also the, the regular authenticity is it's also a really complex. And many people have tried to define the, the concept. And many scholars say that, well, it's, um, it's really hard to, to define. Uh, the, the authenticity concept is tricky to define. So what I wanted to do was to bring the concept into the field of media and communication studies. And authenticity, and in particular mediated authenticity, is such an important contribution to this field, whereby so many people attempt to frame conversations around, is something real? Am I being deceived? What exactly am I looking at? But all too frequently, the field lacks the language to have these discussions. And mediated authenticity really creates an important step forward in terms of how we begin to have these conversations and identify core characteristics of performances and delusions that the media constructs. And similar to your work, Jamie has been working on looking at authenticity on YouTube for the past several years. Um, my work is within the idea that the framework of authentic behavior that is made on YouTube is a kind of a fabricated mediated version of authenticity anyway, because it's more of the commodifiable version of authenticity, where somebody can present themselves as a certain character, and that character's technique, uh, their voice, their their attributes, their, their ability to talk across the medium of YouTube can be replicated similar to the way that memes are replicated. But in that, it turns the average person into somebody who can adopt a tool set that is uh, an authentic, a faux authentic tool set. And once that's replicable, people could then become YouTubers, so to speak. They can actually enter that field, that specific genre of authentic communication. But in that, it creates this like possibility that, like you mentioned, this paradox of there is no real authentic then. We cannot get to the bottom of what authenticity actually derives from. And in that sense, it actually creates a, a misunderstanding of what YouTubers do in, in terms of like, are they actually people? Are they actually humans that have some sort of empathetic approach? Or are they doing it solely for the ability to profit on that platform? And so I would love to like hear your thoughts on like what it means to be mediated through a platform that is profitable, what it means to uh, cohere a community through something that is presented as real, but is completely fabricated. Hmm, yeah, I think user-generated content trend and the participatory turn, when it all started, uh, YouTube, of course, is one example, and uh, Facebook later, but um, what uh, this represented was a new arena for ordinary people to produce um, media. And, of course, these uh, kinds of uh, platforms represented something different than the mainstream media, the established uh, big firms. Um, and mm, many people were critical of the media and still is because of the commercialization and the fakery and all that kind of 
problems with uh, with the big networks. So the user-generated media uh, platform, they represented something that people expected to be more real, more genuine and more authentic. So that finally ordinary people had a voice and they had a place to to get their feelings across and their opinions across. And this is this was really something that we celebrated really hard in 2006, around um, those years. It, it was the celebration of, of, uh, of, of these, uh, these new platforms. But now we see that, oh, really, this is also a construction. People now uh, see that they are also done for commercial purposes and people uh, also know how to perform as authentic. There have been several authenticity scandals in um, blogging, for example, where people are uh, taking to be real people um, making um, blogs and, and video blogs from their bedrooms, while in fact they are professional artists doing it for professional uh, reasons and trying to make a name for themselves. And I think these are playful uh, uses of the new platforms and that, of course, uh, we could say that they are also exploiting people's naivety and people's um, yearning for the authentic because people want something authentic and these new platforms have the variety of of performance possibilities so we have of course some people performing uh, really um, and they learn as you say they they it's it's easy to replicate because there are certain certain illusions that you need to to do to get across as authentic and therefore it's really hard to know if a politician for example is authentic in his or her performance and also the same thing with youtubers uh, so um, you would have to follow them over time and get to know them and uh, there are yeah there are some some illusions that you can of course um, copy from others to come across as authentic so you create heuristics. I've, I heard you talk about authenticity scandals, authenticity illusions, and I immediately recognize the terminology from the book. And these heuristics allow people to have better and more informed conversations and understandings of mediated authenticity from authenticity contracts, which are tacit agreements between content producers, audiences, and regulatory authorities, of which too few exist, especially here in the United States, to authenticity illusions, which refer to the fact that mediated communication represents reality and is not truly reality itself. Can you walk us through how you believe people can use these heuristics to work to better understand authentic mediated performances and perhaps be more resilient in their everyday discourse? Mm, I think that um, if you want tools to, um, to kind of um, examine what's real or not, this is, um, this is not uh, maybe the most useful tools, but uh, I'll explain this in a... Um, um, uh, uh, the first um, thing that is that my point is um, that, okay, the contract 
is between the producers, as you said, uh, and the audiences. And in some cases, the audiences is also the producers. Uh, but um, we have uh, in this contract uh, elements such as uh, genres, media genres, that we, we know what to expect, for example, in the news. That's why uh, fake news is so easy to produce, because news conventions are so established and you can recognize them. And it's really made so many uh, funny um, um, movies, um, television shows, um, cartoons, trying to make fun of news and to replicate news. You have you have all kind of satire, uh, which are really easy to make. It's easy to uh, sit in your house and pretend to be an, a news um, host and, and just uh, make up news. Because you know the style, you know the voice, you know everything, how the how the news is produced. It's, it's so conventional. And that's why it's so easy also to make the fake news uh, and to, to kind of replicate this. Um, and if, but if you want to, to have tools to see through the fake news and, and kind of, okay, uh, how, how is these, um, these fake news? Um, how, how can we be able to separate the fake from the real news? That's when it becomes a, a trouble, um, according to to my book and, and my ideas, is that there is really also something to do with the um, the reader of the news or the, or the, um, uh, the audience, because that, that's why people want um, want to believe something that's not true. If you know what I mean, they. Fake news production and the populism discussion, it's, it's something that I would warn against us being too moralistic to say that there is something called real news on the one hand, and on the one other hand, there is something called fake news. And we are supposed to judge what's real or not. And we need to give people the right tools uh, because they need to get informed and enlightened and to agree with the rest of us uh, but maybe it's not that easy maybe it's more that people have a different understanding of reality than we do and that's why populism and fake news works because it does resonate with uh, the people who they want to believe it they are not i would not say that these are just about learning the right tools uh, to uh, or media literacy will help us and save us. I don't believe that. I don't believe that uh, people need to be uh, smart like us. I don't think that people are necessarily stupid if they believe um, things that we don't believe, but that, that there's a different system and that people's sense of authenticity, it depends on how they feel, um, what they feel is real in the world and how they relate to others and what their reality looks like. And I think my sense of authenticity as a Norwegian woman in my late 40s uh, is different from you guys in the US and that, that's because we live different lives and, and in a different environment, read different newspapers, uh, different policies, uh, 
Norway is different uh, in many ways, but of course we are highly influenced by the U.S. and live in a global world, so it's it's not all that different either. But but I, my point is that uh, I don't want to judge people's right. uh, sense of authenticity because some people disagree with with us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I like what you said there, and I think being having a background in media literacy, I think there's been failings in the framework of how media literacy operates as a heuristic to kind of negotiate these spaces as your term is like we negotiate between the reader and the creator and one of the tools of media literacy was kind of like to be skeptical and that same tool has caused us to be uh, more interested in disbelief or the idea that there's other things to be questioning so nothing is out of the realm of questioning those kind of realities and so I really do like the way that you say that because I, I, I appreciate that um, authenticity itself is a framework of hyperlocalization. And if we're in one area or another, it's kind of how you interpret that type of media, not just how we um, gain that access to it either, because it is a global space, but like each, each person has their own ability to want a reality that they accept. And so when people speak directly to that, that kind of becomes the default mechanism. And so uh, my, my, my overarching concern about this is how authenticity can be kind of monetized from that. It's kind of like how platforms can then engage that type of um, algorithmic or flow that is kind of that already built-in confirmation bias that flows uh, whatever version of authenticity each person gets to their exact feed. And that, ty- that type of thing is the end product of what happens when there's just too many voices going to too many people. And so I, I'm, I, I, I actually do appreciate that idea that the negotiation between reader and creator is probably the most important aspect of understanding what is authentic in these digital spaces, considering just like we're doing now, we're in two different countries, two different time zones, speaking across a shared platform. And so these types of things are like more and more common for, for people. And we want to make sure that we also encourage people to understand that as their understanding of media uh, and authenticity rather than expecting something to be real just on its outset. So I, I, I like that uh, you said that. So I would love to hear some thoughts on like what you believe that uh, the monetization or commodification of these, are platforms responsible for any of this? Or is this just a negotiation between user and creator or producer and prosumer? I think uh, they are responsible, should be made responsible um, as uh, platforms and as media producers and are in, in, in these new platforms uh, where everyone in, in principle allowed to express themselves uh, uh, openly and that's a valuable um, ideal. To, to protect the freedom of speech in, in these platforms. Uh, but also we need also to have a certain type of regulation and responsabilization of the platforms. And these discussions are really interesting to follow because they are, um, it's a moving target. It's, it's happening while, while we speak and uh, it's, it's still early, early days. So we might um, 
we might see some some changes here, but it's it's still open and and the platforms are trying to find ways to legitimize their businesses and their business models and yeah, but but the politicians are also reluctant and it's it's difficult even even to to um to regulate and and to demand more regulations. Yeah, I think Europe has done a far better job than the United States uh, with with the control of like what privacy, what data is vacuumed up, and how we can create those types of systems. I think that type of I think that's a better middle ground than like a full on regulation. But I, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, there's there's platforms need to have some sort of like ability to control or or know what these flows are, these user flows and on these things. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, because I think it, it's a lot of responsibility now for the users. The users are expected to uh, to filter and to analyze and to be uh, um, yeah, they, they are supposed to be really educated and, and media savvy to to handle all the all these different messages. But that comes back to your point about how young these platforms are. Within within two decades, we've gone from almost zero to the world being connected on them. And you're right, there's a lot more to learn. And in the future, I mean, it's weird to think of the future at this point, but in the future, when we look back, these are like the nascent infantile stages of how we negotiate these spaces. So I think we have to do keep that in mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. And when we, for example... When radio was a new medium and everyone could produce radio, like pirate radio, um, it was uh, chaos. Uh, people made uh, like amateur radio productions. Um, and what happened was that it was um, made into big companies and regulated. And of course, here in Europe and particularly in the Nordic re- region, in, in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, um, we have a quite high regulation uh, degree of the media. So when radio and television was new and throughout the years, they, they have been really highly controlled, the, the broadcast media. So for us particularly, being um, kind of uh, transformed into the global media digital media space without any national regulation, it has been really a big difference, of course. Um, and um, we uh, we might expect things to be more regulated, but everything has to be done on a super uh, or um, over national uh, level, such as the European Union. And, um, and of course, what's going on in the US will affect also the Nordic region. Uh, in a higher degree. Right. You know, what's interesting to me about this constant negotiation, um, one line in particular, um, on page 135 of your book, you write, typically authenticity becomes a pressing matter once it is under pressure or threat. I'm curious if when you were writing this book, what particular threats you saw coming? The book was written out of uh, curiosity and out of some experiences in the work with my dissertation. And um, the, um, the findings is, was that uh, I, I found that um, there was, of course, uh, 
quite surprisingly to me at that point was that um, user-generated content was faked by by the big uh, media companies like television stations, newspapers. They they like pretended to be ordinary people writing comments, and of course these um, and the, these fake. Uh, fake uses of ordinary people were something that uh, I was curious about. And also when I saw that the rise of social media made it possible for ordinary people to be their own producers, it was uh, really something that uh, I wanted to dig deeper into. For, as you say, it's hard to know what threats will come in the future. But what we know is that it has, um, with every new media technology, there has been debates about what is authenticity and how does the media produce a new version of reality. So in a way, uh, my expectation or my fear uh, was that the more, the more that uh, we see around us that becomes artificial, uh, take, for example, artificial intelligence or faceless communication, artificial food or facelifts, everything that can be faked, everything that can be, uh, yeah, uh, just um, everything that can be manufactured uh, around us and, and the professionalization of everything that people can uh, know how to produce um, yeah, advertisements and um, political communication becomes also more and more professionalized. So all these factors, they, they pull in one direction where we see that more and more is artificial and more, is, more and more is uh, based on technology and the ability to construct reality. But then we see that people also have uh, a yearning for authenticity and they have a nostalgia for authenticity and something real and genuine, but they don't really know what it is or at least it's different from different people, but it's that kind of development towards um, the digital and the, um, the artificial that kind of made the, the void, so to speak, between people's uh, real lives and the, the mediated and the, the processed around us. One of my favorite case studies that you write about is Lonely Girl 15. Lonely Girl 15 was a YouTube channel thought to have been started by a young woman, Brie, in 2006, nearly a decade and a half ago. But when audiences started to pick up something was a little bit strange about Brie's vlogs, they began to do investigative work to make sure that she wasn't actually trapped, kidnapped, or maybe alternative signaling to people that she needed help. But Eventually, it was revealed that Brie was not actually Brie at all, but rather an Australian actress named Jenna Lee Rose, who had been hired by a production company, EQAL. The founders of the company were able to identify the popular conventions of YouTube performances, from the American Room, to the introduction with the schwa, to the apparent spontaneity of each performance, and they replicated it in this series. The fascinating part, and Definitely the most dangerous part is how established genre norms of a platform can be used against people. It plays to what an individual feels to be authentic, but may or may not actually be so. 
at this particular moment in the United States and around the world, we're seeing the rise of conspiracy theories like QAnon perpetuate on digital platforms and even making their way out into physical spaces. Do you think that people are falling for inauthentic communication? Or like you said earlier, does everything maybe just happen to feel a little bit too authentic? The uh, lonely girl example is is really um, something that I uh, found interesting uh, as a starting point for looking at how uh, ambivalence is something that seems really authentic. Because when you seem so sure about everything and say, uh, uh, I, I want to do this because this and that, and I'm, I'm 100% sure and I have no doubts in my life, I know what I'm doing, then it, it kind of doesn't seem real. But it, it seems more real if you're uh, ambivalent. If you, think, if you say that, well, I don't really know, maybe I should do this blog and maybe not. Uh, I feel so shy because this is what she did when she started her, her first um, episode of uh, of this uh, fake uh, reality um, blog. So she was uh, she was using ambivalence, and I think and that's that's something that really seems real. And as you say, can it be too real uh, in terms of conspiracy theories? Um, it's it's hard to understand the um, the, uh, um, the conspiracy theories. They often also use elements of, of things that we know from the media, like sensationalism and stuff like that. But but what what I want to come back to is how uh, are media content constructed in terms of authenticity. And also, of course, fake news and um, all these conspiracy theories, they also come across as real for people because maybe people don't believe uh, the media to be uh, honest or authentic or trustworthy. So they they look for something behind the the real um, news. So they think that, oh, there has to be something underneath. There has to be something more real than what people tell me. So they become really suspicious of uh, the mainstream media and they, they therefore find it easier to trust the alternative media uh, or the wild conspiracy theories because they think that they are smarter than the um, average people or the news. And they, they find this really interesting. You bringing up alternative media is a perfect segue for what I was going to ask you next. Sometimes when people speak about mediated authenticity, there can be the illusion that a contrasting or an alternative performance style can be viewed as more authentic because it breaks from the established norms of a platform. Looking at cases like Charlie Sheen in 2011 when he used Twitter in a new way for a celebrity to Donald Trump after, well, always Trump, but in particular, he kind of broke convention for a politician when he announced that he was running for president in 2015, typing in all caps and with a lot of exclamation points and excess emotion. And my question is, if the dominant norms of a particular platform help to create an illusion of authenticity, how can the media help to manufacture an authentic politician? You speak about Barack Obama in your book and the media's role in helping to construct him as an authentic politician, but what does an authentic politician even look like? 
Well, um, authentic performances by politicians could be, um, as you say, breaking the norms. But it's also about being predictable. So um, I have actually, in in my book, I suggest like seven um, characteristics or um, illusions Uh, seven tricks that can be used to come across as an authentic politician, for example. And one of these, uh, the first of the seven um, characteristics uh, is uh, predictability. Because being consistent is something that we um, value as authentic. Because we want people to be the same as they were yesterday and coming across as uh, consistent. Uh, so, for example, Trump, you used him as an example, and also Barack Obama. Uh, they uh, were both predictable or consistent in their performances in the media, even though they um, can be said to be quite different. Um, they were consistent to their own persona. And when Trump uses spelling mistakes in his tweets or exclamation marks um, and all kinds of hilarious tweets, it's typical of uh, Trump. So we recognize it as authentic. So we don't think that it's written by his uh, secretary or press um, advisors, but they might be. But we think that they are real. And same thing with uh, Barack Obama. We, uh, he was consistent in his talks, in most of his performances, not all of them, but he came across as an, um, trustworthy and likable and predictable in many ways, um, as I write, write, in the, write in the book. But something that's uh, more typical for, um, for example, Trump and many of the populist politicians is spontaneity because spontaneous performances performances that are that are for example suddenly breaking out uh, or in laughter or anger or tears or whatever um seeming improvised they seem more engaged and emotionally driven uh, rather than calculated and strategic So this um, being both on the one hand predictable and consistent and on the, on the other hand being spontaneous, that's something that's recognizable for authentic politicians. But also they need to be um, ordinary. They, seem, they need to seem uh, like an ordinary people. They, they need to come across as an everyday person in a way. And they can do this by, for example, eating hamburgers or going to a football match or uh, seeming like, uh, yeah, I'm just an ordinary guy. And maybe Trump is also ticking this box because he's coming across as, even though he's rich and famous and not ordinary at all, he has some elements of this ordinary person of just being himself, just being angry, just being and also being anti-establishment. Anti-establishment is also something that seems more authentic, that you come across as something different, that you may be 
not following all the rules, that you're doing your own thing, that you speak from your heart, that you're honest, speak from the gut, that, yeah, you don't take any kind of strategic consideration to what you say or do. And that that's, I think, Trump has been really uh, strategically... Uh, when he he comes across as really an authentic uh, politician, even though he's lying uh, lo- lots of the times, and he he uses these um, these uh, illusions of authenticity, I would say. It's so interesting. Um, you touched on so much there, and since you've published uh, this book in 2015, we've seen an even greater shift of mediated political communication on social media networks. Um, from Donald Trump's 2016 electoral victory, which you speak about in Twitter as an arena for the authentic outsider, um, to the 2018 midterm elections, which is where my thesis begins, um, where we move back to a more ephemeral and oral-based culture. Um, We saw here in the United States, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Beto O'Rourke in their run-ups to their election begin to utilize Instagram Live and Instagram Stories. And uh, your frameworks allowed me to begin to understand how to speak about these. So from ordinariness and the spontaneity of AOC um, building IKEA furniture in her apartment and engaging with people in real time, um, being ambivalent about answers and creating strong parasocial relationships with people, uh, granting unprecedented access, not just to uh, be able to communicate with politicians, but access into uh, the more uh, boring parts of their life, um, into their apartment, watching them eat fruit snacks, watching them build out furniture and having the same trouble that maybe a normal person would have. Um my and and interestingly enough, what I saw and not to get to uh, Marshall McLuhany here, but was how the actual platforms um, were shaping the speech and performance of the individual uh, performer. So on Instagram Live, AOC would begin a broadcast video with a standard greeting that was more consistent with a television or a YouTube production. A, Hi guys, um, which Jamie speaks about a lot. Um, or, um, but when she starts an Instagram stories, which, um, are interjections, uh, which, which interject every six or seven seconds, which are meant to be more short form, which ultimately are meant to offer a glimpse into someone's life. Um, they always began, um, the speech with, uh, with verbal tics, like, um, with an interjection. So it's like a, so and, ah, a like. Um, so you see how the medium kind of plays with um, or influences the individual's performance. Um, we're having a hard enough time determining authentic content from inauthentic content when it does stay with us. How do we begin to understand communication on mediated platforms when it disappears just as soon as it happens? The um, the liveness is really important here and the immediacy being something that creates a kind of a closeness uh, and togetherness and um, the here and now, uh, which was um, some of the fascination with uh, broadcast media when it was new. And uh, I think there still is something special about the shared now, uh, here and now. And even though it's um, going away, it's some strong experience of uh, being 
authentic uh, together, experiencing something authentic together. Uh, so that might be uh, be one way to look at it. And I I, uh, I agree with what you say about uh, new ways of using um, platforms to come across as uh, authentic and to relate to voters. And when politicians use new platforms, uh, they yeah they they of course adjust their behavior and their performances to to these platforms. Uh, and so the the politician the the role of the politician is different. We we now uh, need different types of politicians than in the broadcast era, for example. Uh, social media presidents might be different from. The television president, the television president uh, was different from the radio president because he, it's always a male, um, he needed to look good in television, um, on the television screen and and now with social media, the politicians need to manage the intimacy and kind of, they need to show more imperfection. There is uh, no room for being like totally polished and trying to come across as a perfect hero with um, yeah everything under control. But it's it's more um, yeah as you say IKEA furniture and spelling mistakes and all, all kinds of, <laughs> of yeah human kind of flaws. To be human is not to be totally polished, and maybe this is just the right direction that we need to go. And thank you so much, Kuhn, for taking the time here to join us on the Digital Void podcast. This has been an honor to speak with you. I can't encourage anybody hard enough to go purchase Mediated Authenticity, How the Media Constructs Reality, available everywhere now. The Digital Void podcast is a production of Digital Void Media. You can visit us at digitalvoid.media on the web. Subscribe to our Substack, which is available on the website. Head on over to our YouTube channel. You can search for Digital Void to find our archived live stream virtual salon series, workshops, and media meditations as well as all upcoming podcast releases. You can email us feedback at digivoidmedia at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider today.